So I'd very much like to welcome you to Gaia House and to this retreat. And actually, I'm feeling very happy that we could actually do this on Monday as Gaia House sat surrounded by snow and ice and impassable roads. We were sitting pondering, do we cancel or do we go ahead? And uh, fortunately, the weather has changed, so I'm glad we made the call that we did. So, many of you are, I know, we've been looking at your interview forms, and many of you I know are very, very familiar with silent retreats and how they unfold. And for some of you, it's more unfamiliar and more new territory. So this evening, what we'd like to do is to really kind of give you an overview of the retreat, to introduce the template of insight meditation, the practice we'll be engaging in, to give you some of the background to this practice of insight meditation and mindfulness, and, you know, to some degree to focus on some of the sort of origins, the wider context of mindfulness. Now, one thing I'd like to do this evening is to give you a little assurance, because, you know, for some people, they come into a center like this and they see all the Buddhist iconography and, you know, you will hear us making quite a few references, actually, to Buddhist teaching. But I'd like to give you the assurance that we have absolutely zero interest in converting anyone to Buddhism. Um, it's not on the agenda. But what we really want to do in terms of the languaging we use and some of the references we draw on is to communicate the depth of this teaching and what it can offer. And first of all, I say, in my understanding, pretty much every spiritual tradition uh, has an element within it where the practice and cultivation of mindfulness is really stressed. I think there's a pretty much a universal acknowledgement that for anything at all to be able to change, for anything at all to be understood, to be transformed, the beginning of that transformation is always with awareness, with waking up, with learning to look at life directly. Now in this tradition, uh, in the Buddhist tradition, mindfulness plays a very central, a very pivotal role in the whole of the path of liberating the heart from struggle and suffering. And it's a very, very refined and sophisticated template of development. You know, a couple of years ago I read in the Guardian newspaper, I was reading this article about mindfulness, and and I I should have been alerted because it came under the heading of trend spotting. 
And, you know, it talked about the latest craze to come out of America and how mindfulness had been invented in America 25 years ago. And, and it went on to talk about how then mindfulness was now the solution to everything, you know, from vandalism to depression to suicide to everything, to financial problems, you know, everything was going to be helped by being mindful. In fact, the title of the article was Enlightenment in a Raisin. So anyway, and so I, I reading this article, I, I sort of thought, well, you know, this, this word has really entered mainstream culture. You know, mindfulness has really entered mainstream culture. But I did write to the journalist to say that I, I thought they missed like two zeros off the twenty-five. You know, and that they it was a little bit of sloppy journalism. But in reality, you know, a little over 25 years ago, of course, John Kabat-Zinn in the States really did do this very remarkable thing, uh, providing a template, uh, a path, a path of development that really could be utilized and employed by anyone. And I, I think there was something there was something very special and very remarkable about that. But of course, in this particular tradition, mindfulness, you know, as it was taught by the Buddha, was really taught as a response to suffering. Mindfulness was taught as a response to suffering. It was a very radical teaching at the time. So it was also taught as very much a path to the end of suffering. A friend of mine, Daniel Goleman, some of you may know some of his work, he, he talked about his surprise when he traveled to India in the early 70s as a graduate psychology student to really discover that the basic questions of the psychology of the mind, the psychology of the heart, had really been explored for millennia. And that there had evolved a very elegant map of understanding and a systematic development, a systematic response to emotional and psychological suffering. You know, and if you go back to the earliest times of this tradition where the Buddha said, you know, I just teach one thing, that there is suffering and that there's the end of suffering. And really spoke, the whole of the teaching was really dedicated to the healing, the healing of inner torment and the presentation of a path that could be utilized by anyone. You didn't have to be a scholar, you didn't have to be a Buddhist, you didn't have to be a monastic that, or an academic, that really all anyone needed to practice this path of healing was to have a body, to have a mind, and really to have a willingness to commit themselves to a journey of compassion and awakening and kindness and empathy. You know, and ever since that time, like 2,600 years ago, like th this teaching, this practice, this development of understanding, of mindfulness, 
has really been in a process of translation. You know, when you see when, you know, the teaching went from India into Tibet, into China, into Japan, you know, into Southeast Asia, there's always been this process of translation where there's been these kind of adjustments to the culture of that time. And that process of translation is very much an ongoing one. You know, and I think you see in our culture, one of the ways that that process of translation is happening is really how to bring this fit of these very sort of ancient teachings into this very contemporary world where people are actually facing the same challenges people faced 2,600 years ago. But I think part of the richness of this process of translation is this this very rich dialogue that is occurring between sort of uh, Western psychological, therapeutic traditions and these kind of very sort of timeless spiritual traditions of inner development. And, you know, in my understanding, this is an incredibly rich dialogue in which I feel both traditions are benefiting and being enriched. So in many ways, everything that all of you are doing in, in your work as you bring mindfulness into your various kind of you know, clinical applications, you're really engaged in this dialogue and this process of translation. And I think it's a very important one. And, you know, when we come here on these retreats, you know, I mean, there's, there's a couple of different reasons that we've been teaching these retreats together and with John Kabat-Zinn over the last few years. Um, and one of them is to really, in a way, uh, deepen our own, our own personal practice deepen our own personal understanding, deepen our own capacities and skills in exploring and developing mindfulness. And, I mean, you will know that on these retreats, you know, there isn't, we don't teach clinical skills, we don't teach clinical applications, but in many ways, everything that you learn to do in your work, you actually learn in the laboratory of your own mind and your own heart and your own body and your relationship to all of that. And that's, I think, what is really taken in the most skillful way outside of retreats. And in many ways, many of the things that we will talk about on this retreat, you know, that when we talk about in-depth understanding of mental states, of world constructions, you know, this is not something that's necessarily going to be appropriate to take into this setting or that setting out there. But there's something very appropriate for us to understand for ourselves how our world is being born and constructed inwardly, moment to moment. And of course, mindfulness is really the vehicle for that understanding. As I mentioned, you know, 2,500 years ago, there is something very timeless about struggle and suffering, isn't there? I mean, this is not just a sort of contemporary issue. 
you know, and 2,500 years ago, people faced very much the same challenges, the same dilemmas we face, you know, of being born into and living in a world that we cannot, often can't control. An unpredictable life that too often refuses to cooperate with our hopes, our desires, our demands, and our longings for certainty and safety. We face, like people have faced through time, these very age-old disappointments, you know, the not getting what we want, too often getting what we don't want. Some things lasting too long, other things not lasting long enough. Our bodies experience the universal story of all bodies, of aging, of sickness, of death. Lovely sensations at times and also painful ones. Our minds can experience a whole range of lovely experiences, states and events of happiness and joy, and we also all have our own measure of frustration and sadness and disappointment and at times emotions that bewilder us, confuse us. Part of this journey of mindfulness is to take out the sense of bewilderment. That we don't have to feel, you know, we, we don't have to be in those places where we come out the tail end of some huge emotional storm or thought storm and think, what was that all about? Or what was all that all about again? That's even worse. but to take out that sense of bewilderment to really understand that through this practice and through mindfulness we can befriend this mind we can befriend this heart and we can understand it and when we can understand the nature and the way of our hearts and minds that is the place where there begins to be possibility of walking new pathways, of being able to let go of the word again, of being able to see that there may indeed be options and choices guided by understanding. That is the kind of liberating power of mindfulness. Now, when we face this sort of existential, you could say, this existential dilemma of struggle, at times pain, at times suffering, how do we respond? Well, you know, 2,600 years ago, the Buddha gave a little list. You know, those of you who are at all familiar with Buddhist teaching, that's fantastic at lists. So there's little lists of responses. How do we respond? Do you look in ourselves? How do we respond to what, the moments when we don't get what we want? How do we respond to the moments of pain in our bodies? How do we respond to a life that sometimes is just not doing what we want it to do? One of the responses is, that these are very classic pathways, the sense of um, despair. 
Life is unfair. I am helpless. I am powerless. Things just happen to me. Sometimes I respond with anger, with blame. This shouldn't be happening. How do I get rid of it? How do I make it go away? You know, how do I avoid it? A more, less classic response is guilt. You know, I'm unworthy. I must have done something to deserve all of this. You know, I must do it because I'm a sort of inadequate person that my life is like this. In terms of Buddhist teaching, the Buddha said that these pathways are pathways that compound suffering. They compound suffering. They don't lead to freedom. They don't lead to the end of suffering. In fact, they perpetuate it. They heap pain upon pain. And it talked about another way, the path of investigation, of compassion, of understanding, and of mindfulness. And I think it is this possibility of transformation that has always brought people to this path or to any path that offers any sense of of possibility, of encouragement, of support. I think it, it is that sense of possibility that really rescues people from despair and depression And it is a very, very central part of this teaching. Very, very central part of the teaching of mindfulness of this path. Learning to understand, to befriend, to transform our hearts and minds. We might say it begins with this very first, this very most important step of Stopping. Just learning to stop. Because when you when we look at our own experience, perhaps when you look at the experience of people that you work with, we can see that in the face of pain, in the face of struggle, stopping is not the first thing that arises in our minds to do. Mostly what arises in our minds actually is either flight or get busy try to fix it, try to manipulate it, try to get away from it. We get agitated. So this path, this path of mindfulness, is actually suggesting quite a radical alternative. What does it mean to stop? To step out of the cycles of resistance, to step out of the cycles of agitation, to step out of the cycles of blame and be still and listen. Listen, just be still and turn our attention inwardly without fear and without aversion to the landscape of our own hearts and minds. And this is the essence of mindfulness. To be still, to turn our attention without aversion or blame, but with kindness, with curiosity, with compassion, with attentiveness, to the landscape of our own hearts and minds. It's a very radical step. It's not something that would naturally occur to us to do, and yet it is the beginning of no longer being governed, being governed by fear and anxiety and aversion. 
As one teacher put it in a long time ago, he said, you know, to know the mind of another is to be wise, and to know your own mind is to be enlightened. And maybe that's where we, we really start. And yet, we also recognize that to really understand maybe the mind of another or the heart of another, we need to understand our own. And to see that this mind, this heart, really lives in a state of potentiality. The potential for phenomenal obsession and agitation and reactivity, but equally the potential for equally remarkable stillness, kindness, compassion, calmness. And by learning to stop, we can actually really begin to see what it is that we're actually feeding, what it is that we're cultivating, what it is that we're developing, that potential for remarkable stillness and kindness or the potential for remarkable confusion, and complexity. I think I'll probably stop there. So let me um, add my own very warm welcome to that Christina has offered. Um, It's really good to have you here, and uh, particularly to those of you who haven't been here before, um, just an acknowledgement that uh, it can can feel very strange uh, in this place, in this sort of semi-monastic environment. just to invite you to, all of you really, to make yourselves at home, to relax as best you can, to soften the body and to come to some place of arriving and ease as best you can. Um, Despite its oddities, many people do come to love this place. for what it is and what they find here. Um, The time we have together is quite short. um, And in many ways, it's a rare and precious opportunity. And part of the reason for that is because together we create an environment, a community in which we arrange conditions so that compared to our everyday worlds, um, it's much easier to deepen our practice, to, as Christina says, become aware of what's going on in our inner landscape, and to explore new ways of relating to experience, of seeing things, to explore new ways of being. And I'd like to speak very concretely about some very important practical ways in which that environment, that supportive environment, 
that will nurture and underpin all our practice these days depends very much on a commitment from each one of you to observe a number of basic guidelines, some of which I know the coordinators mentioned in their talk. But before I get round even to those very practical things, perhaps I should just pick up on things that Christina's already touched on, which is kindness. I mean, if, if we were to single out you know, one key factor that is crucial to the fruitfulness of practice, to releasing ourselves from suffering, and that we can actually embody and imbue the work we do with clients and patients, you know, it's, it's kindness. Kindness to ourselves, to treat ourselves more gently, less harshly than we often may. And we'll have many experiences where we can do that in this retreat. You know, our minds won't do what we want it to do. We'll experience difficulties. Bringing some gentleness and easing on perhaps our habitual harshness there. A general sense of friendliness to all beings that we encounter. It's one of the curious things, although we'll be in silence, one can actually begin to feel quite close to others and one can support that by silently wishing people well as we pass them. Uh, a very lovely way to support this sort of ultimate con commitment to friendliness and kindness. And a kindness to our own experience. The crucial first piece once we recognize what our experience is, is to allow it to be as it is. Not to demand of it that it be any different than it is. Not to get into struggle and contention with it. And in many ways that's a very radical act of kindness. Um, it is a crucial piece of mindfulness that I'm sure you've heard of over and over again and which we have this opportunity to embody over these few days. So I think it's really crucial. We'll come back to it, but probably we won't explicitly you know, emphasize kindness just as much as it deserves. So I, I want to get a mention of that in first off. And in many ways, the kind of practical guidelines that I'll talk about are ways to embody that kindness because they really spring from a care for ourselves, a care for each other, um, so that we can create conditions that will nurture our practice and help us you know, ease ourselves out of our own suffering. And the first and most obvious one of these guidelines is that relating to silence, which I'm sure the coordinators have spoken of. And if you've not been on a fully silent retreat before, it can be one of the areas that engenders the most apprehension to begin with. Um, and it can feel somewhat strange. I think it's important to acknowledge that. But those who have fully committed themselves to these kinds of retreats 
often speak very eloquently of the power of silence. Um, the way in which it in many ways gives us this sense of being safe and at ease while in the presence of many other people, many of whom we probably don't know. But it immediately takes away this necessity for having to present ourselves in a particular way to deal with interactions. We don't have to feel isolated in our kindness. We can actually sense a curiously many ways closer connection with those around us and offer them, as I say, you know, our wishes as we pass them. Um, it immediately simplifies things by taking that whole piece away. But equally importantly, um, the outer silence um, enables the mental chatter to still a bit. Um, it enables the mind to calm, to gather, and in that way we can connect both with what is deeper and truer within ourselves, more lovely, and also curiously with you know, what is wider and deeper more generally. If you take a walk down to the laundry at the end of the main corridor, you may come across this quote from Rumi, the Sufi poet who's beloved of many mindfulness teachers. And there's this little quote, um, let silence speak to you about the secrets of the universe. So clearly this notion that there is a power in silence has been around for a long time, very widely recognized. But if you've not had this kind of retreat experience before, you have to take that on trust to begin with because the only way you'll discover that power and the way it can support you is by committing wholeheartedly to the silence. And this is the piece I really want to stress, the wholehearted commitment to the silence because its power depends on the continuity. It's not the kind of thing that, you know, okay, well, I've been silent for a few hours now. I'd really just like to see what's going on at home. I'll give them a ring. It'll only be a few minutes, and then I can just pick up where I left off. It doesn't work that way. It's like trying to make a fire by rubbing sticks together. You know, if your arms start to get tired and you think, I'll just take a break now and that'll be fine. It'll only be a couple of minutes. I've already been rubbing for 20 minutes. You know, you start again. You're back at the beginning. And in many ways, the silence works in that way. So that the times I've seen people on retreats like this, you know, break the silence and... Um, it's, it's a pain to me, not just because they're breaking the rules, which I find very offensive, of course, but really um, the fact that they are shooting themselves in the foot. They're denying themselves the opportunity to discover the power of silence. And crucially, you know, if they talk to other people or if their behavior actually encourages others to get on their mobiles, their cell phones or whatever, um, it you know, is an act of unkindness to others. So really, as an act of kindness to yourself and to other people and your contribution to creating this environment, please, please observe the guidance on 
silence. And I'll just remind you of what they are. So that's no talking at all unless invited to by a teacher or a coordinator. Particularly difficult situations where speech is going to feel natural are in the work periods or when you're alone in your rooms with a roommate or perhaps when you're out walking. Um, Those are times to be particularly mindful and careful. No reading or writing other than keeping notes of um, your practice or talks like this. Um, No passing notes to each other. That can be as plaguing to other people an intrusion on their silence as speech. Certainly write notes to us. And, you know, if if you reach the point where you just have to talk to somebody, then feel free to write me a note. You know, that by itself that may be enough, or we can fix up and you can talk to me. But I would far rather you come and talk to me than to talk to anybody else on this retreat. Um, So no mobile phones, no texting, no messaging, no even peeking at them, if at all. So if there's business you need to deal with that you haven't dealt with before you came, please do it now tonight and explain to people that you know you're going to be out of contact clearly if there's some crisis going on at home it's probably better to keep connection briefly with that rather than to worry about it but otherwise please don't use your mobile phones or consult texts um have i covered everything there because it's so important christine i need to check yes those are all the don'ts yeah um okay so so that's silence, and it can be so powerful, but you have to commit to it. Um, the other thing that can be really supportive about the retreat, and really just touch very briefly on the shape of the retreat, is the simplicity. I mean, you've probably heard this thing that mindfulness is basically simple, but not easy. And one of the things that makes it not easy in our everyday lives is that our lives are so complex. We're carrying this list of things to do, the decisions we've got to make, the plans we're working out, implementing. It's so difficult to be here for this moment. Um, here, all that is cut away. You know, so the invitation is right now to arrive here, to let go of whatever you've been focusing on up to the time you've come, to be with the simplicity of the schedule, to let go of any agendas you may have bought, problems you wanted to sort out, books you might have wanted to write, um, things you wanted to fix. It's a very rare and curious opportunity to have the opportunity just to be so simple where the only decision you need to make at the end of a sitting is, is this a time to go for food or is this a time to go for walk? Or is this a time to go to sleep? Okay? So I really would encourage you. You'll see the schedule is very simple. Basically, you get up, you sit, you walk. You work, you walk, you sit, you eat. And if you can just sort of commit yourself, even just as an experiment, to exploring that, rather than at each of the end of the sitting, you know, well, what shall I do now? Should I go and have a nap? Should I go and have a cup of tea? Should I go and have a walk even? Um, If for the moment you could just explore the possibility of doing the simplest thing, doing what the schedule says. For many people, that kind of schedule 
presses buttons about you know, authority and memories of schools and authoritarian regimes, that's just grist to the mill. That's something to work with. Um, so I would really encourage you to commit to that simplicity if you can. Um, Thoreau, one of John Kabat-Zinn's beloved writers, puts it very neatly. He says, Our life is frittered away by detail. Simplify, simplify. And you'll never have a better opportunity to do that than over these next few days or other times that you come here to Gaia House. So finally, let me talk about these behavioral guidelines that I think the coordinator will have touched on. And really, these are ways, I think it's best to approach them as ways of embodying that kindness to yourself and to others, rather than as heavy uh, edicts from above, you know, engraved on tablets of stone. These are really guidelines as to how, if we can each commit to them, we support ourselves and everyone else in creating a community of care and kindness which engenders this sense of safety and security that allows us to relax, that we can you know, just no longer watch our backs and our hearts can open and we can begin to look at what's going on inside us rather than worry about the wider world. It's also a way of protecting and nurturing our sensitivity and clarity. So just to remind you of these five guidelines once more. Um, the first is not to harm any being, whether it's human or non-human. So if you encounter a spider and you don't like spiders, then respect its life. Don't just obliterate it, you know, either just ignore, you know, move your way around it or, you know, just treat it as kindly and as carefully as you can. Um, in the garden, I mean, uh, the moment the, the birds and if there, you see any rabbits, they, remember that these creatures have been exposed to some severe weather. They'll be quite weak. So if you see them, then one way to embody your kindness to them would be to steer well clear of them so they don't have to fly away from you because that uses up valuable energy. So it's really looking for opportunities like this to embody kindness and this wish for non-harming to all beings. Um, the second precept is to not take that which isn't freely given. Um, bluntly, this means don't steal, but it also means, you know, for example, not using somebody else's toothpaste unless you've got express permission um, from them to do that. It's really trying to let go of our sense of entitlement to things, to uh, act off our sense of need and graspingness. Um, and if we can do that, then, and we can all commit to it, and we know that we've all committed to it, then it does present, uh, allow this basic sense of safety, security, we can relax, our hearts can open, and we can really come in to the moment. And that's also really the motivation behind the third precept, which is not to engage in any intentional sexual or romantic behavior. 
if we just right now, you know, get it clear in my mind, that's what I'm going to do, then if we find ourselves attracted to somebody else on the retreat, then that can be a reminder. Don't go there. You know, it's not helpful to me. It's certainly not helpful to them. And if we again can all know that this is a commitment that each one of us is making now, then we can be less worried. This isn't a worry I carry, I can assure you, of becoming the focus of somebody else's romantic or sexual interest. But um, it does uh, affect other people more strongly. Um, so that, you know, again, we can relax and let our hearts open. Um, fourth precept is about wise speech, which ordinarily would mean, you know, using speech honestly and kindly and gently and helpfully. Um, here it is very simple. It basically means observe the silence. And again, please consistently, continuously observe this silence as a kindness to yourself and to other people. Um, when you do speak, obviously, in group interviews, um, then speak honestly and gently and usefully and so on. Fourth precept is not to um, use any um, drugs or alcohol intoxicants that may cloud the mind. Um, obviously, if you're taking prescribed medications, please just continue with those as normal. And the point of this precept is really to preserve and protect your own sensitivity and clarity. Um, we're doing a lot of work. You know, you've come a long way, and some of you have struggled through snowdrifts to get here. It would seem such a shame, you know, um, after you've spent hours and days of gently, patiently, persistently bringing the attention back to the breath to get the mind settled and clear, to go and cloud it by taking alcohol or drugs. And also, of course, the major problem with this is that once you go down that route, then all the other precepts are likely to go out the window. And finally, oh, that was the final one, wasn't it? Yeah, we got there. Okay, well, finally, just let me repeat the really important one. Be kind to yourselves and to each other and to your experience. So um, let me wish you a, a friendly and a, a fruitful retreat. I hope you go well. Okay. So we're going to end the evening with a short sitting, but before we do that, I'd just like to invite you, if you want, to stand up, stretch your body out a little, um, not necessarily go anywhere, but just have a stretch. Then we'll have a short sitting.
the first invitation, you could say the first task for everyone on this path, whether we're very experienced or very new, and the first invitation is the same for us all, just to begin to calm down. That's simple. Don't expect to sit and think that you will have no thoughts, you know, and drop into some blissful realm of existence. You will sit, you will have thoughts. Count on it. You know, your life will follow you onto the cushion. Why would it not? You will have thoughts will arise about what's gone by, perhaps about what comes after the retreat. This is what a mind does. It has thoughts, just like a body has sensations. This path is not a pathway of trying to get rid of, suppress, overcome, transcend, or create some kind of disembodied experience. In fact, it is in the midst of this. The thoughts, the sensations, the plans, the memories. This is where we really learn to cultivate a gathered and collected attentiveness. And that is why, you know, it is only if we have the willingness to do that that this practice means anything at all off a cushion or outside of a retreat. You know, because this practice is not about trying to make life go away, but to find within the midst of our life, within the, within the center of our bodies, our minds, a place of calm, collected awareness. We begin, it's often very helpful in doing that, to really, really to commit ourselves to being present. It doesn't mean that past and future don't arise, but it means not being lost in the thoughts about past and future. To commit ourselves to being present, to commit ourselves to being aware. That is already a big transition. You know, there there can be something very seductive, can't there, about fantasizing or, you know, walking down these lovely memories or torturing ourselves with terrible memories or, you know, torturing ourselves with terrible thoughts about the future. But there is something about the commitment to being present, which is it's actually really quite an engaged, a very conscious step that we make. Not about getting rid of, but about being with where we are. In that, in that step of collecting, gathering ourselves, it, it's very important to, to have an anchor, an anchor of connection, an anchor of attention. And very often we suggest that mindfulness of breathing is that anchor. Simply because of its simplicity, you don't have to try to have a breath, there is a breath. And the work of mindfulness is to align ourselves with the breath that is there. It's also using the breath, I think it's very important in the beginning, because it is that beginning of landing in the body. And as you know, the first foundation of mindfulness classically is the mindfulness of the body. You also know in most mindfulness-based applications, the very pivotal 
pivotal place that being mindful of the body actually plays. Because it is that, that anchor that is tangible, that is reachable, that is approachable, that is present. So over, I mean, over the retreat, we'll actually be giving quite a bit of instruction. But tonight, if we just take a few moments just to settle into the posture, into your body, being aware of a sense of as much uprightness as you can find in your back and neck, sense of alertness within your body. And taking some moments just just to be mindful of the landscape of your body in this moment. The places where you touch the ground, the cushion, the chair. Being aware of the sensations in those places. Being mindful if there's any places in your body that feel tight or tense, contracted. Softening, softening your shoulders, your hands, your face. Bring in a kind of calm attentiveness to be aware of the range of sensations in your body changing, moving, shifting Be mindful of the sensation of your body breathing. We have the incoming, the outgoing breath. The expanding, relaxing of your body with each breath.
Just let in the thoughts, the images that are present. Just sit in the background of your attention. Not pushing them away, not getting lost in them. And bring it into the foreground of your attention. A very moment-to-moment awareness of your body breathing. Just in the last few minutes of the sitting, just also expanding the field of your attentiveness to listening, aware of the quietude, stillness around you. It's opening into that sense of spaciousness, of quietude, it's being present.
We're ending quite early this evening, very aware that many of you have traveled today or come from work and are somewhat tired. I would encourage you, though, to really this evening to to finish up. Any, if you have any outstanding business you need to take care of, please do so if you can this evening. Um, really also just to have a sense of arriving, you know, allowing yourself to slow down a little. One of the great blessings of a retreat is you really don't have to hurry, you know, and it's very much a state of mind. And it's a, it's a kind of wonderful kindness just to give it up for a little time. And just to allow your body just, just to slow down just a little, just to relax. Very often our minds also respond to that. So tomorrow morning there's a wake-up bell at 6.30 and a, a sitting at 7 o'clock to begin the day. I hope that you rest well. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.